The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. Donald Trump Jr. accidentally confesses. This is Thursday, July 13th, 2017. Thank you very much for listening and for supporting this free independent news when you use and bookmark the Amazon links at buzzburbank.com. If you were to start a drinking game based on hearing the word Russia, you would likely die of alcohol poisoning. But Russia is topic one since our system of democracy was and still is under direct attack by Russian President Vladimir Putin. And because of signs, our president's people tried to work with the Russians to elect Donald Trump by smearing Hillary Clinton. There is mounting evidence that's what's happened. Without democracy, as established by the nation's founding fathers, no meaningful government can exist to guarantee our defense or our health care. Because no one in the Trump administration bothered to mention it before, we've just learned of another meeting during the campaign that brought together members of Team Trump and a Russian closely connected with Putin. The previously secret meeting involved this Kremlin lawyer and three members of the Trump campaign, Paul Manafort, Jared Kushner, and Donald Trump Jr., the president's son, his son-in-law, and his campaign manager. The dimmest of the three appears to be Don Jr., who not only confirmed the New York Times intelligence sources, but went on to incriminate himself and much of the Trump administration. The Times report was bad enough. Trump Jr. made it worse. What Jr. revealed in his confirmation of the Post story contradicts his own initial statements and just about everything the White House has ever said about the campaign's contacts with Russian officials. Donald Trump Jr. had originally said the meeting wasn't about the election. It was about allowing Americans to again adopt Russian children. But adoption was just a pretext or a pretense. The next day, the Times reported that Jared took that meeting with the Russian lawyer because she'd offered to help Dad's campaign with allegedly damaging information on Hillary Clinton. And he says she did talk about that, but he said it was vague and, quote, didn't make sense but Trump Jr. took that meeting with a representative of a hostile government because he thought data stolen by the Russians would help his father get elected by hurting Clinton. Jr. had gotten written notice, an email, that the meeting would include information from the Russian government, which, as he was told then, was working to help his dad's campaign already. According to the email that Don Jr. released on Tuesday, this Russian lawyer offered very interesting documents that would, quote, incriminate Hillary and be very useful to your father. The email goes on to say this is obviously very high-level and sensitive information and is part of Russia and its government support for Mr. Trump. Trump Jr. jumped at the chance, answering the email right away with the words, if it's what you say, I love it. This may be the smoking gun. Former Justice Department prosecutor Peter Zeidenberg calls it extremely damaging, adding, certainly shows an intent to collude with the Russian government. All campaigns do opposition research, but accepting that kind of help from a foreign government is illegal. And Trump Jr.'s statement contradicts what he said in March when he told the Times, did I meet with people that were Russian? I'm sure I did, he said. But none that were set up, he said. None that I can think of at the moment and certainly none that I was representing the campaign in any way, shape, or form. The meeting took place just two weeks after Trump had gotten enough delegates to secure the Republican nomination as that party's candidate. Coincidentally or not, it was just a few days later that Clinton emails stolen months before by Russian hackers 
finally appeared online, creating new doubts among voters about Clinton, changing minds to change votes. The latest revelation about a secret meeting between Trump campaign officials and a Russian close to Putin also contradicts what then-President-elect Trump said in January, that there was no contact between his associates and Russia during the campaign. None that he knew of, he said, even though his son, his son-in-law, and his campaign manager were in on the meeting at the building owned by the candidate, while Trump himself was also there in New York, also inside Trump Tower. And it was just minutes after that meeting, from another part of Trump Tower, that Trump himself began what would be a series of tweets about something he'd never mentioned before, Hillary's supposed 33,000 deleted emails. In fact, before that first tweet, after Don Jr.'s meeting with the Kremlin lawyer, no one had ever mentioned the number 33,000. But Trump mentioned it again in a speech that same night, promising new information on the Clintons forthcoming. Jr. says he did not tell his dad about the meeting at the time. But the meeting had been set up by a man who had once been one of Trump Sr.'s Russian business partners. The setup also came via email. This is also not the first time Trump campaign spokeswoman Hope Hicks has been proven false when she said right after the election that there was no communication between the campaign and any foreign entity during the campaign. Don Jr.'s revelation contradicts Kellyanne Conway's statement in December when she told Face the Nation, absolutely not, to a question about contact between the campaign and Russia. And it was in January in which Vice President Mike Pence answered the same question with, of course not. In February, Sean Spicer said the president was sticking with the position he'd taken the month before, and now Donald Trump Jr. has contradicted all of that and exposed his dad, the vice president, and other White House officials for saying things that are not true. White House officials' denials about meetings with Russians have just blown up in their faces. So have all their claims that accusations of collusion were lies told by Sour Grapes Democrats. And this comes as congressional committees and special counsel Robert Mueller focus on not only the Russian interference, but on collusion with the Russians by the Trump campaign. Donald Trump Jr. has now lawyered up. He may need it. That Russian lawyer was likely under FBI surveillance, as are all Russian operatives. Her office may have been bugged by the FBI, and maybe Don Jr. got caught up in that recording. CBS News this morning reports that U.S. intelligence first picked up Russian discussions of Trump associates back in 2015, even before he declared his candidacy. Don Jr.'s offered to testify about the meeting under oath. His dad tweeted his pride, calling Don Jr. innocent. Jr. is the fourth Trump campaign official to have had secret meetings with agents of the Russian government during the campaign, meetings they denied and later admitted, even after the first warnings about Russian interference. The other three are Attorney General Jeff Sessions, former National Security Advisor Mike Flynn, and top Trump advisor, son-in-law Jared Kushner. Now, after meeting with a Russian lawyer, Donald Trump Jr. is meeting with an American criminal defense lawyer. And we now note that the Justice Department special counsel investigators will be studying those emails and all the details related to the meeting between Trump's son, son-in-law, and campaign manager, and that Kremlin lawyer offering election goodies. Donald Trump Sr., meanwhile, was tweeting that he was proud of his son's transparency after saying for months that no members of his campaign had met with Russians.
Even this president knew it would look bad if he didn't at least ask Vladimir Putin about this meddling when the two of them met at the G20 summit last week. So Trump at least asked about the thing he has argued is fake news. It's what Trump did and didn't do after the meeting that deeply concerns many people regardless of political stripe. Trump reportedly told Putin twice to stay out of our politics and Putin denied any meddling. Trump, who'd gone into that meeting predicting, quote, a lot of positive things happening for Russia and the United States and saying nobody really knows if it was Russia, came out of the meeting laughing with Putin at American reporters. These are the ones that insulted you, asked Putin, as he and Trump were surrounded by free world journalists. They had a good laugh about that, even though 35 journalists have been murdered in Russia over these past 17 years of Putin's reign. Instead, Trump has called Putin a strong leader. And Trump came out of the meeting saying it was time to move past all this and move forward with Russia. Trump also came out of the meeting suggesting the U.S. and Russia work together on cybersecurity, but it's pretty clear who came up with that idea. I'm sure Putin could be of enormous assistance, said Senator John McCain, since he's the one doing the hacking. Lindsey Graham said it's, quote, not the dumbest idea I've ever heard, but it's pretty close. Fellow Republican Florida Senator Marco Rubio said such an alliance is like partnering with Syria's murderous dictator to control chemical weapons. Former Defense Secretary Ash Carter said this is like the guy who robbed your house proposing a working group on burglary. Or as my colleague Bob Seska put it, like George W. Bush working with al-Qaeda on airport security. Bob's commentary on all this will be along in the next segment. Meanwhile, from a nuclear power plant in Kansas came news that Russian hackers had been targeting computer and security systems at facilities across the U.S. for the past two months. The hackers haven't gotten into the plant's operating or security systems yet, mostly just administrative computers. Most of America's nuclear plants are so old, they aren't even connected to computers. As for the summit at which Trump and Putin finally spoke in person for the first time, it wasn't so much a G20 as it was a 19-and-1. With Trump representing this country, the U.S. stood alone on trade and especially on climate change. Trump often sat alone at the summit while all the other leaders spoke with each other. Their new leader of the free world, German Chancellor Angela Merkel, said, Unfortunately, and I deplore this, the United States of America left the climate agreement. She added, I am grateful that every other head of state and government acknowledges that the Paris Agreement is irreversible. Even Trump's British political equivalent, Prime Minister Theresa May, has said she's unhappy with Trump's decision and has implored him to reconsider. European leaders in general are worried about the future of international relations now that the leadership once demonstrated by the U.S. has dried up under Trump. Our world has never been so divided, said French President Emmanuel Macron. Our common goals, he said, have never been so threatened. Trump called the gathering a wonderful success. When he couldn't be at the G20 table, Trump's daughter Ivanka sat in for him, the attractive shoe designer sharing a table with the world's leaders. Many observers saw it as an act of disrespect by Donald Trump, letting his daughter sit in for him at a high-level meeting akin to what a third-world dictator might do. Ivanka serves as an unpaid advisor to this president but has an office in the West Wing, and her presence at that table again blurred the lines between family and government business. Those blurred lines got to be just too much for the government's top ethics official, 
After six months of trying to pin Jell-O to a wall, Walter Schaub Jr. has left his job running the Office of Government Ethics. Schaub says he thinks he can have more influence on Trump's conflicts of interest from outside the government. So he's joining a nonprofit group that works for enforcement of federal campaign laws. Schaub says Trump's claim that his sons would run his business while he's president are, quote, meaningless. It was Schaub who advised the White House to discipline Kellyanne Conway for plugging Ivanka's fashions on Fox News with a White House logo suspended behind her. The White House did not discipline Ms. Conway. Schaub investigated the ethics complaint that Trump was promoting his Mar-a-Lago resort on a taxpayer-funded White House webpage. It was Schaub who called out the administration for letting Conway and Steve Bannon sign undated retroactive waivers exempting them from ethics rules when, in fact, they had violated those very rules by submitting undated waivers. Schaub told CBS News in an exit interview that he cannot yet prove that Trump's used his presidency to profit, but he says Trump has profited from his presidency. It appears we're about to get a new FBI director, the last one having been fired, not for cause, but for investigating possible collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia, and for not announcing that Trump himself wasn't under investigation, which he wasn't at the time, but is now. In any event, Trump has nominated Christopher Wray to replace James Comey, and Wray, spelled W-R-A-Y, says he won't let politics affect his work. He told a Senate confirmation hearing, my loyalty is to the Constitution and the rule of law. If I am given the honor of leading this agency, I will never allow the FBI's work to be driven by anything other than the facts, the law, and the impartial pursuit of justice, period, full stop. Ray, who worked in the Justice Department under W and investigated Enron, said he would handle the job without fear, without favoritism, and certainly without political influence. He promised to resign rather than drop an investigation for political reasons. And Ray says the Russia probe is not a witch hunt, as Trump has repeatedly said. Ray says no one has asked him for a loyalty oath or anything like it, and quoting him, I sure as heck didn't offer one. When asked about Donald Trump Jr.'s eager acceptance of a meeting with a known Russian government representative to get Russian intelligence that could affect the election, Ray said, any threat or effort to interfere with our elections is the kind of thing the FBI wants to know. Widely respected, Ray's likely to be confirmed early next month with support from both Republicans and Democrats. The Trump administration may not get its way. His so-called Presidential Commission on Election Integrity may never be able to do what it set out to do. Trump established the commission to investigate voter fraud, which he claims is widespread, and he says is the reason he lost the popular election by three million votes. And he ordered up that commission, despite there being no evidence from officials in red states and blue that any notable fraud took place. But to find this non-existent fraud... Trump's commission requested that all 50 states and D.C. hand over voter data, including party affiliation and 10-year voting record, along with many other pieces of personal information. The administration says that data would be stored on a server in Mike Pence's office. At least 44 states gave a complete or partial no to that request, and there were lawsuits, including one filed by the Electronic Privacy Information Center. 
The White House is challenging that lawsuit, but is facing several others that include charges of breaking certain rules and laws, including the E-Government Act of 2002. The ACLU says Trump's commission is violating the Federal Advisory Committee Act, which requires open meetings with advance notice on all this, which didn't happen. The Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law has filed a lawsuit similar to the ACLU's. The Brennan Center for Justice and a group called United to Protect Democracy have filed a complaint with the Office of Management and Budget accusing Trump's data collecting commission of violating the Paperwork Reduction Act of 1980. It's even been alleged that the chairman of that commission, Kansas Secretary of State Chris Kobach, has violated the Hatch Act, which prevents using official government to influence politics. Other critics are worried the real purpose of the commission is voter suppression, keeping minorities and other likely Democratic voters away from the voting machines on Election Day, or worse. Up next, what's happening with your health care, your paycheck, and your planet, along with that comment from Bob Seska. It is so very important that you show your support for this free and independent newscast by doing as much of your shopping as possible through my Amazon links at buzzburbank.com. You'll land right on your very own Amazon page, as always. You'll get the same great prices, as always. If you believe in what I'm doing here, what we're doing together, really, it's important you go to buzzburbank.com, click on that link, and then bookmark the page and make it one of your favorites. Whether you're already a Prime member or you're shopping Amazon for the first time, going through that link even just once helps sustain this program. Amazon has nearly everything you need right to your door, and in two days or less for Prime members, I cannot say enough about how much I enjoy Amazon Prime Video, which comes with the Prime membership, along with music and books and more. And please, use my Amazon link if you make purchases for your office, school, church, or some other organization. That really helps. To those of you who've already done that, thank you. And if Amazon's not right for you, you can also support this program by clicking on the PayPal button just below the Amazon button in the upper right corner at buzzburbank.com. First, do no harm. That's not just part of the Hippocratic Oath for doctors. It's what governors from states across the country are telling Republicans in the Senate about messing with health care, which they still are. Even the latest revised Republican plan to repeal and replace Obamacare has been declared dead, and if that's an exaggeration, it might as well be true. All the Democrats in the Senate are against it, along with more than enough Republicans to keep even the latest revised plan from passing. And now even Republican state governors are pressuring their fellow Republicans in the Senate not to pass that latest revised plan. So the current leaders of the Senate are now stuck between a rock-solid seven-year promise to repeal and replace and the health care is hard place of not angering a public that's grown fonder of Obamacare, especially now that it's seen the Republican plans. Americans want to keep Obamacare by a two-to-one margin. Sure, a plurality of us, the biggest number of us, want it fixed and improved, 44% of us. But nearly one in four of us likes it just the way it is. Fewer than one in three of us wants it repealed and replaced. That and a new study from the Kaiser Foundation that shows Obamacare is not collapsing, as Republicans have claimed. That, in fact, the market is stabilizing and insurance company profits are up despite the chipping away at Obamacare in red states. Senator John McCain said this about the Senate bill to repeal and replace. It's probably going to be dead. A tweaked version of the latest plan is expected to face a vote today to try to bring Republicans together, but a few GOP senators say they won't support this one either. 
So now Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell is delaying the lawmakers' August vacation by a couple of weeks to work on the president's request for a, quote, beautiful new health care bill. Trump had said before he'd move on if Trump care didn't pass, but now he says he'd be angry if it doesn't pass. Get ready for him to be angry because even the latest version appears to be dead on arrival. And there's also been talk of repealing Obamacare without replacing it, throwing us back to where we were before with skyrocketing premiums and no coverage for pre-existing conditions, no coverage for women's health or for your kids up to age 26, forward into the past. As the senators returned to work this week after a holiday break, they were met by protesters at their Washington offices, just as some of them had encountered back home despite their efforts to avoid them. Eighty protesters were arrested in the halls of Congress on Monday. In the meantime, Obamacare is still the law of the land. Most people are kind of okay with that. And the latest checkup says Obamacare remains healthy for now. The average American makes $26.25 an hour. That's up from last year, but by only 2.5%. But there are jobs. We added nearly a quarter million jobs in June, more than the experts expected. There are, in fact, more jobs now than there are qualified people to fill them. In some parts of the country, unemployment's now under 4%. Nationally, unemployment's still around 4.4%. 4,000 more people filed for unemployment last week, bringing that total to 243,000. The government and the people of Iraq are understandably eager to declare victory over ISIS, and they have every reason to celebrate the recapturing of the city of Mosul, what's left of it, from ISIS. But not all the ISIS fighters in Mosul have surrendered yet, still holding one neighborhood and still fighting with Iraqi security forces. And another but. ISIS booby traps and IEDs continue to blanket the bombed-out streets, and those have to be dismantled before people can return to their homes. Hundreds of thousands of people still cannot return to their homes. The UN says that just since the fight to retake Mosul began in October, nearly a million civilians have fled. Well, over two-thirds of them are still displaced and living in humanitarian camps. And those camps are strapped for money. The U.N. saying it's so far raised less than half of the nearly billion dollars it needs for shelter, food, medicine, water, sanitation, and emergency kits. Quoting the U.N., the fighting may be over, but the humanitarian crisis is not. One teacher who's eager to start teaching again returned home to find his family's possessions looted and all the windows broken. And that, says the U.N., will be ISIS's legacy in Mosul. Yesterday, we learned that an iceberg weighing over a trillion tons had broken free from western Antarctica. It's 22,000 square acres, about the size of Delaware. If it moves to warmer waters, as expected, it will melt and add a bit to sea level rise with enough water to fill Lake Erie twice. For now, it poses a risk to cruise ships. As the Earth's polar ice caps continue to melt away, the latest on that in a moment, the sea level continues to rise. That puts coastal communities at risk of extinction in 20 of our 50 states. And the rising water means fiercer storm surges along those fading shorelines. Storm surges already kill too many people and cost us billions in damage. Even a Category 1 hurricane, the smallest of the bunch, would do the damage of a much bigger storm with these eroded beaches.
and a new study from the University of Central Florida shows this is a bigger and sooner threat than previously known. They're predicting what they call extreme sea levels, a combination of high tides, storm surges, and bigger waves. The Florida researchers used 20 different methods for predicting sea levels and reached their conclusion even after factoring in the odds of uncertainty in any of those methods. They say that quickly ending our use of fossil fuels could turn the tide. Perhaps you've heard it said, Greenland is ice and Iceland is green. Fun fact, Greenland is actually a big sheet of ice that sits atop bedrock. Fact that's no fun Every year, Greenland loses more than 250 gigatons of ice. That makes enough water to submerge the entire state of Texas under a foot of water. And a slew of recent studies shows the rate of melting in Greenland is increasing. Greenland is now four degrees warmer than it was just 30 years ago. There's a drilling operation underway to find out why Greenland is losing ice faster than any other place on Earth, a lot of it crumbling away from the underside of that ice layer. Greenland's ice is melting so quickly that drilling site has already been moved 160 feet toward the sea by the melting. There have been times in history, even recent history, at which Greenland's ice has virtually disappeared and come back, and even the experts don't expect it to ever go away completely. But they do agree that the ice that covers Greenland isn't as stable as once believed, and that, especially for Greenlanders, but for us all, this does not bode well for the future, especially as ice at both ends of the globe keeps melting, with the oceans expected to rise 3 to 9 feet in the next 80 years. Yet another new study, a mathematically conservative study, says between 165 and 180 U.S. cities will be underwater in 15 or 20 years. Over the next 20 to 80 years, those cities will include New York, Boston, Miami, San Francisco, and the total will be near 500 cities. Here at the Gulf of Mexico, another dead zone has formed in the ocean. They expect this summer's dead zone to be twice as big, about the size of New Jersey. Sometimes this occurs naturally. More often lately, it's caused by man. The runoff from fertilizers and the wastewater from communities flow into the Gulf, polluting the water in a way that removes oxygen from the water. The result is sea creatures, on which we depend for food, die. And industries die. The fishing industry that harvests the fish and the shrimp. And climate change is now making it worse. The more carbon dioxide from oil and gas that gets released into our air, the more the ocean dies. The coral reefs that provide food and shelter for our seafood get bleached and die. If the oxygen level gets low enough, every living thing in the water dies. Around the world, 500 million people rely on seafood that comes from coral reefs. Experts say that by 2050, all the coral reefs would be gone. Speaking of icebergs and the tips of icebergs, here's this week's special commentary from Salon.com writer Bob Seska. Thank you, Buzz. In a strange way, it's a relief that President Donald Trump and his various henchmen are such idiots when it comes to dealing with what's rapidly evolving into a presidency-ending scandal. Otherwise, we might not know half of what we've heard about the increasingly treacherous Trump-Russia story. If Trump was closer to a real-life Frank Underwood... There'd still be a massive scandal, but the president and his people wouldn't be inexplicably confessing to it. 
But Trump is, of course, no Underwood, that's for sure. In fact, many of the president's most disturbing problems are the direct consequence of his confounding lack of personal discipline and the Trump administration's all-around ineptitude when it comes to standard operating procedures in a crisis, textbook procedures that have been employed through most of American presidential history. For example, here's a sentence that Trump and his people ought to learn, but which they never will. It's not the policy of this administration to comment on ongoing investigations. Not only is it smart legally, avoiding self-incrimination, but it carries the added bonus of being Twitter-ready. If the president and his staff are feeling chatty on a particular day, they could also add, we refer you to the Department of Justice and the Office of Special Counsel. That's it. From the very beginning, the Trumps have handled this in the most ridiculous way possible, telegraphing their guilt and, in some cases, accidentally blurting their confirmations of the journalism, the alleged fake news, that they're loudly denying. You might remember how the president famously reacted to the leaks in the press about the nefarious activities of former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn by saying outright, quote, The leaks are absolutely real. The news is fake because so much of the news is fake. Well, if the leaks are real, then the reporting is accurate because it's, oh, never mind. Additionally, Trump obliquely confessed to attempting to use the National Enquirer to blackmail Joe Scarborough and Mika Brzezinski, tweeting that Scarborough contacted him about killing a damning story about the MSNBC morning hosts, and Trump said no, which would indicate that it was a possibility. Of course, we all remember when Trump contradicted the official White House account of the firing of former FBI Director James Comey by telling Lester Holt that he had fired Comey to stop the Trump-Russia investigation. And as it turns out, the orange doesn't fall far from the tree, does it? Donald Trump Jr.'s explanation for his June 9, 2016 meeting with a Russian lawyer with alleged Kremlin ties is basically a tacit admission of collusion between the Trump campaign and the Russian government to circulate stolen documents. In his statement, Trump Jr. recounted the general details of the meeting and confessed outright the meeting took place under the pretext that damning documents about Hillary Clinton would be provided in exchange for weakening U.S. sanctions on Russia handed down in the dual Magnitsky acts. That's what's called collusion, perhaps even conspiracy, according to Congressman Adam Schiff of California. And remarkably, this is only one small piece of a colossal iceberg. Adding to Trump Jr.'s continuing self-incrimination, the president's son dumped a series of emails via Twitter, no less, between himself and a British acquaintance, a celebrity publicist with Russian ties named Rob Goldstone. The email dump was in reaction to a third New York Times bombshell this week about evidence that Trump Jr. knew in advance that the supposed dirt on Clinton came from the Russian government. This time, rather than blurting fake news and whining about the dishonest media, Trump Jr. revealed everything, defying best practices and very likely the advice of any competent criminal attorney. By the way, don't get me wrong, I'm not complaining. Quite the contrary. But in the emails, we see definite proof that Trump Jr. was interested in acquiring the spoils of the Russia attack after learning himself about what the Russian government was up to. All of this was well before the general public found out about what Putin was cooking. In the initial email, Goldstone said to Trump Jr., this is obviously very high-level and sensitive information, but as part of Russia and its government's support for Mr. Trump. Trump Jr. replied, quote, if it's what you say, I love it, especially later in the summer. Again, Donald Trump Jr. made this public himself. The stupidity is dizzying. Making matters worse for themselves, the Trump team keeps taking the bait. In other words, every time a new bombshell drops, Trump associates or surrogates rush to comment about it, only to be revealed as liars when the next bombshell goes off. 
This time, when the First Times article was published on Saturday, Trump Jr. claimed that he, Trump's son-in-law Jared Kushner, and then-campaign manager Paul Manafort met with Natalia Veselnitskaya about Russian adoptions. Then, when it came out on Sunday that the purpose of the meeting was to receive possible Russian dirt on Clinton, the excuse from the pro-Trump Republicans became opposition research. Even though we've never heard about opposition research being gathered from a hostile foreign government in the midst of an attack on a U.S. election. At that point, Trump Jr. decided to confess via the aforementioned statement. Then came the third story on Monday, reporting on email evidence that the Clinton dirt may have come from Russian intelligence. Trump Jr.'s response? Release all the emails, but continue to claim that this sort of thing happens all the time. Pro tip, it doesn't. Meanwhile, hovering just slightly under the radar is news that the White House is quietly trying to weaken congressional sanctions on Russia. Excellent timing, right? I don't mind repeating, thank goodness this was Donald Trump and not a real-life Frank or Claire Underwood. Otherwise, we wouldn't get to enjoy the ongoing accidental confessions of these bungling political gumps. The more we observe the vast dumbness of what John Oliver calls stupid Watergate, it's becoming increasingly obvious there's no way in hell this team of flailing doofuses and preening toddlers won the 2016 election without serious help from Moscow. We're also nearing the point of certainty that more than a few of them are going to prison. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thanks, Bob. Catch him every Tuesday and Thursday on The Bob Seska Show here at RealmNetwork.com, and I'm proud to now be one of the regular guests on that program. The flamboyantly Christian owners of Hobby Lobby have been hit with a $3 million fine, and they have to give back the biblical artifacts that were stolen from Iraq by terrorists 10 years ago. Hobby Lobby had smuggled the items into the country, labeling stone tablets as tile samples. Hobby Lobby's also been ordered to develop an acquisition policy to train its people accordingly and to report to the government any cultural property it acquires over the next 18 months. Quoting the company's president, we learned a great deal, but he adds, our passion for the Bible continues. We all agree, we need more stories like this. 80 people, nearly all of them strangers to one another, work together on a moment's notice to do the right thing. It happened in Florida. The yellow flag was up, but Roberta Ursery and her husband and her mother and her sons and their cousins were getting hot in the sun, so they went into the water to cool off. Suddenly, the 8- and 11-year-old sons were farther out than they'd been before, and they were screaming that they were stuck. Roberta and some other family members swam out to rescue the boys, but they too got stuck in a strong rip current. Now, nine people were stuck in that current in water that's 15 feet deep. A couple on the beach saw this, and the woman said, These people are not drowning today. It's not happening. We're going to get them out. A self-described really good swimmer, she headed out on a boogie board while her husband rounded up a rescue team. And together, these 80 people formed a human chain holding on to one another to form a rope to pass the victims back to safety. In the course of it all, Roberta had passed out and came to in the sand. Her mother was in an ambulance where she went code blue and was revived, and a nephew got a broken hand. It was a day at the beach that was no day at the beach, but it could have been much worse. The good swimmer with the boogie board says she was amazed at how all these strangers just suddenly stepped up Quoting her, it's so cool to see how we have our own lives and we're constantly at a fast pace, but when somebody needs help, everybody drops everything and helps. And then she said, 
that was really inspiring to see that we still have that. With everything going on in the world, we still have humanity. Quoting one of the other good Samaritans, I automatically thought they'd seen a shark. A weed emergency, snorting chocolate, a farewell to Lafayette, Spider-Man facts, and all the fun stuff in the third and final segment, up next. A smooth, clean shave from a blade that feels expensive but comes right to my door at half the cost of those big-name brands. That's what we love about shaving with products from Harry's, from the hefty balanced handle that fits your hand to the precision-engineered five-blade cartridges that come with a trimmer blade, a lubricating strip, and a travel cover, plus Harry's rich, slathering shave gel. It all started when a couple of regular guys named Jeff and Andy got tired of getting ripped off on blade prices, right? One big company in particular, I think you know, relentlessly jacked their prices and made a fortune while we all spent a fortune. Jeff and Andy wanted to fix shaving, so they started by cutting out the middlemen. They bought their own factory, one that's been making engineered blades for over a century, so now they can ship top-quality blades straight to you from that factory. The result? Quality products at your door for half of what you've been paying. Half. Jeff and Andy are so sure you'll love their products, they want you to go to harrys.com right now to sample their trial shave set free. A $13 value, but all you pay is the shipping. Sign up at harrys.com slash R-E-L-M. And because you listen to this newscast, Jeff and Andy will even throw in a free post-shave bomb. But only if you log on to harrys.com slash R-E-L-M. It's a weed emergency. In Nevada, the latest state to legalize recreational marijuana, the governor has stepped in to support emergency rules because of a possible weed shortage. The buds could grind to a halt. It makes sense once it's explained, but who thought we'd someday hear the words governor, weed, shortage, and emergency in the same sentence? Well, there's plenty of weed with over 100 legal licensed growers inside the state. The problem is getting the weed from the farm to the table. Companies that distribute alcohol are the only companies allowed to transport marijuana in the first year and a half of the new law, and seven of those companies have not yet lived up to the state's requirements for them to do that transporting. There are only 47 stores in all of Nevada, and because of this delay, many of those 47 stores are now running out of inventory. Sales, you see, have far exceeded expectations. Dispensary sold about $3 million worth of weed last week, and a million dollars of that went into Nevada's tax coffers. But with a shortage at the dispensaries, the concern is the customers will, at least for now, go back to street dealers. And a governor who opposed the legalization of recreational pot has now declared a state of emergency over a supply problem. As reported here before, Florida has legalized medical marijuana now, so long as you don't smoke it. The lawmakers say smoking anything is bad for you, and they see it as a way to discourage recreational use. People who need the weed, people whose doctors say they need it, say inhaling is the most effective way to deliver the drug. The ban on smoking was not the intent of the 71% of Florida voters who instructed their legislature to make legal medical marijuana. At least not according to the man who rounded up that support and paid for the campaign to make it an amendment. Now that man, famous in Florida lawyer John Morgan, has filed a lawsuit against the state to try to force it to do the people's will. 
Morgan accuses Florida lawmakers of making doctor decisions without any actual medical training of their own. He says banning the smoking of medical marijuana was also a lazy move to avoid having to make rules about whether medical can be smoked in public. Florida is also where they make chocolate you can snort like cocaine. Coco Loco is a powder made from raw cacao, ginkgo biloba, taurine, and guarana. A container costs 25 bucks, and the Orlando company that makes it, Legal Lean, says snorting the stuff gives a feeling of euphoric energy and mental clarity for 30 to 60 minutes. Like a so-called energy drink, it may also be hard on your heart. The FDA hasn't figured out yet which rules apply to this product, so the product's still on the market. But the FDA is looking at its options, arguing it's never good to stuff solids up into your mucous membranes. And New York Senator Chuck Schumer wants the FDA and others to investigate what he calls a suspect product with no clear health value. Passings and Passages We lost another gentle but troubled soul from Hollywood this past week. Nelson Ellis, who played Lafayette Reynolds on True Blood and Shinwell Johnson on Elementary, died Saturday at the age of 39. After rising from poverty, Ellis struggled with alcohol and drugs. His family says that during Nelson's withdrawal from alcohol, he got a blood infection, his kidney shut down, his liver was swollen, his blood pressure dropped, and his heart was pounding. He died of complications that arose after heart failure. The family wants us to know this, hoping it will get people to talk about their addictions before it's too late. Nelson Ellis will be missed, but lives on in the work he left behind. Tales of Spider-Man are still packing them into theaters. Spider-Man Homecoming opened over the weekend with a take of $117 million in the U.S. and Canada. It picked up another $140 million overseas, and it's been loved by critics. The success of the latest Spidey film puts Sony firmly at the top of the Hollywood studio pecking order. But Disney isn't complaining since Sony sold it the toy rights to Spider-Man six years ago. If it sounds as though Kermit the Frog's voice has changed again, it's because it has. Matt Vogel is the new voice of Kermit. He replaces Steve Whitmire, who's done Kermit's voice Ever since the original, Muppets creator Jim Henson died in 1990. In other news, Jim Henson's been gone for 27 years. British communications officials are trying to track down a transmitter that's been overriding a local radio station in Mansfield at 103.2 FM. When the pirate station signs on, it plays what's described as a deliberately offensive song about masturbation. Some listeners find it funny. Others are concerned, including competing stations, that know everyone is listening to 103.2 to see if that song comes on again. Some people are, of course, offended, and nearly everyone's gobsmacked over how difficult it's been to find that pirate transmitter. There have been unfortunate incidents, including the song being played as the station was broadcasting live from a family market. Quoting the station's program director, who, of course, is named Tony, some people have told me their children have started humming the song in the car. News you probably won't use. You may not haul major appliances on commuter trains in Australia. A Brisbane man's been fined about 200 bucks for boarding with a refrigerator on a dolly. Quoting one official, trains are for people. You also may not board with furniture. Recently, another man tried to board the train with a sofa. 
Bike sharing works very, very well in places where it's done, including China. So you would think that an umbrella sharing company might also do very well, at least when it rains. The owner of Sharing E-Umbrella put 300,000 umbrellas in strategic spots in 11 Chinese cities and waited for the profits to roll in at just under 3 bucks per rental. By the end of this year, he's been hoping to have 30 million umbrellas in places all over China. Unfortunately, our Asian entrepreneur now has to start all over again because nearly all of those first 300,000 umbrellas were stolen or never returned. He intends to forge ahead with his business. Wish him luck. He's apparently failed to consider a bicycle is harder to shove into a closet. In Fullshear, Texas, two grade school boys were escorted to the police station by their mother. She had been notified by the authorities her sons had been prank-calling the police 25 times all totaled. Each of the boys carried in their hands handwritten notes they had composed, notes of apology. The PD shared the notes on Facebook. One of them read, The reasons why I called you 25 times are because I thought that it was funny to call you and try to send you to the wrong house to make you think that the people in that house did it and because I did not want to go to bed. I am very sorry for calling you all those times. Could you forgive me and allow me to stay in this house without sending me to jail? I promise that is never going to happen again in my whole life. His brother had written a similar note. In his own words, part of it read, Please forgive me. I will do anything to get out of jail if you send me there. I want to stay home. I would never do that again. The police thought about it and accepted the boys' apologies. We all make mistakes, the officers told the boys as they watched their sad and scrunchy faces relax into smiles. And those boys probably will never do it again. Police in Pasadena, Texas, just outside Houston, stopped a girl for speeding. The girl is 11 years old. She was doing 45 and a 35, and her only passenger in that Dodge Durango was her 10-year-old brother. When they pulled her over for speeding, she said, No, I wasn't. Besides, she says her mother had said it was all right for her to drive. Quoting the officer, Thank God no one was injured. From our Drunks Are Stupid department, you know how Anheuser-Busch is always telling you to drink responsibly? Well, read your own label, boys. The company's former CEO, August Bush IV, has been arrested for trying to fly a helicopter while intoxicated. A witness saw him stumble into the chopper and police car light stopped him just before he took off. Police say August Bush was anxious, rambling, and, quote, unable to keep a single train of thought. And in Slidell, Louisiana, a woman was arrested for drunk driving when she showed up at the police department to bail out her friend, who had also just been arrested for drunk driving. And finally, the home office has become overrun with monkeys. In Ocala, a man put a deer feeder in his backyard and set up a camera. Instead, he got photos of monkeys, about 50 rhesus macaque monkeys enjoying the deer food. They even learned how to spin the tray so it would spray the corn kernels out to all the other monkeys gathered round. Those monkeys have eaten 250 pounds of deer food so far. Another 200 monkeys live in a state park just four miles from this man's house. As regaled here before, the park was once privately owned for a river tour. The owners thought adding monkeys would make it more interesting. That was in the 1930s. Today, it's angry monkeys everywhere in the area. 
Two parts of Silver Spring State Park had to be shut down recently after the monkeys started to show aggression toward humans. They're vicious, says the man with the deer feeder. They're extreme. He says, I mean, they get extremely nasty. But quoting the homeowner, I'm not going to let a bunch of monkeys make me move. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thank you for listening. And thanks for supporting the shows and sponsors at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comment. The preceding presentation was brought to you by The Realm Network.